0: Good early afternoon, at least here in the Eastern time of the United States. You are tuning in to another Left Lens live stream. I hope you're all able to be notified by this. I know YouTube sometimes, or a lot of times, gives trouble to my subscribers. And also, I'm locked out of Twitter for a full week or more. and. Uh, That's because of a thread that I shared here during the last live stream. I don't know if you all remember, but the last live stream that I did here, I uh, talked about Tiananmen Square. I talked about the myths of Tiananmen Square that are spread by Western media. And I was then either reported or Twitter flagged. Sorry, Twitter flagged the the threat as violence and harassment. I'm going to talk a lot more about this in the second half of the stream, but uh, we're going to have a very special guest today. It's Camila Escalante of Casacho News. She's going to be talking about the Summit of the Americas, political developments in Latin America uh, more broadly, and it should be a really fun conversation uh, but while we're waiting for her, uh, please do like the stream. Make sure you're subscribing to this channel. Make sure you're hitting that notifications bell. I think I'm going to do a poll of for my subscribers here on YouTube to see if they're actually getting the notifications. Because I've been hearing uh, from many subscribers that they just don't get them. But in any event, it's been a hard week for me in terms of the censorship Not being able to share, communicate, or do anything on Twitter uh, for a week is actually very, very, very detrimental to just being able to communicate with my following, to be able to get my journalism and my work out there. So uh, when I woke up on Sunday morning and found that out, I had just retweeted that thread on Tiananmen Square that evening, and then I woke up saying that my account was locked. I had to... They, uh, they wouldn't start the countdown unless I deleted the tweet. I submitted an appeal, but it just was not going quick enough. I don't know if you all have ever submitted appeals to Twitter. I have many times for being rejected for the so-called blue check, for the verification, and I never get an answer in a timely manner. I always forget that I did it, and it ends up that you know a week, two weeks, sometimes more go by, and then I get an answer. So there was no way I was going to wait for an appeal, but I just wanted to uh, see if uh, during the day something would happen and of course nothing happened. So my countdown started yet last night. Uh, they're saying that I'm back in about six days in change. I, 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 I was also told that it could be more that that's only a countdown of the minimum that I, punishment that I will get. And so now I'm contemplating things like making another account. I am now publishing more on telegram. So I'm actually going to put that link in the chat, uh, and I'm going to put it in the chat later as well. Uh, This is going to be something, Telegram, that I'm going to be publishing a lot more to uh, because I don't think I can rely on Twitter anymore. Actually, I knew I couldn't rely on it, and now that I've gotten this kind of second strike, it seems like with each reporting of me that's successful, the punishment gets harsher, uh, I suspect that my time there, especially when there's a sensitive issue that relates to China or. US foreign policy in general, I'll be banned from Twitter so uh, it uh, this was kind of a wake-up call and you know I'm gonna be on telegram more and then uh, I'm also going to be pursuing I think some of these alternatives. I am on Odyssey so YouTube isn't the only place where these videos go but of course I think I need to get on. To some of these other platforms, just to make sure that the content is safe and that it's not just going to be wiped away. But with that said, welcome, welcome, welcome! Please do like the stream, share it, subscribe to the channel, hit that notifications bell. If you're not getting the notifications, let me know. I'm going to be putting out a poll, I think, uh, to the uh, you know in the community uh, posts. So please do um, look out for that in the coming days. And yeah, what, what more can I say? It was a very frustrating day yesterday. Thank you. First, I just want to say publicly thank you to all of those who helped get the word out. It's hard to communicate with your followers when you literally have no access to them. So on Twitter, I had some very generous help from Ben Norton and Richard Medhurst, Caitlin Johnstone, Lee Camp. These are people that I did and I didn't you know some of them I reached out to some of them I didn't and uh, it was uh, really good to see that uh so you know when this happens to us we should all be able to rely on each other to get that word out and to make it an issue and uh, to remind everyone that this is a huge problem and it's only getting worse <laughs> and uh, I you know in the second half of this program after my conversation with Camila Escalante. Uh, we will we will talk more about what exactly Twitter said, what exactly got me uh, to be locked out of the account, and uh, what what is the context for all of this? you know, because the thread was mainly benign. In, in my opinion, I, the most of what my thread was about, was how actually there were a lot of mainstream Western media sources, CBS, Reuters, WikiLeaks, which is a mainstream, but it did leak a diplomatic cable from a Chilean diplomat. I, I would consider that pretty mainstream. Uh, some uh, And that cable came from the U.S. Embassy in, in China, so I would also consider that pretty mainstream. You know, BBC, New York Times even They all have, over the course of the years, talked about how there was no massacre. The Columbia Journalism Review, we can go on and on, Japan Times. There's source after source after source that shows there was no massacre on Tiananmen Square. And during those protests, there was violence, though, uh, in and around that day in China. But the violence and the source of it is very dubious given. And we should be very suspicious when we hear things like half the casualties being Uh, PLA, People's Liberation Army, Chinese soldiers and police, right? That sounds to me more like a color revolution. Sounds to me uh, not at all related to any kind of legitimate protest, right? That sounds like almost uh, an open armed conflict uh, with the government. And we know that the National Endowment for Democracy has bragged about their support of pro-democracy forces in China. We know the National Endowment for Democracy has done this in countries all over the world, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Ukraine. Uh, We can go on and on and on uh, about how the NED has funded proxy wars. We know their involvement in Syria. Uh, We know their involvement in Hong Kong, which is related to, and I'll talk about this later, is related to the situation in, uh, in Tiananmen Square, that Tiananmen Square incident. Uh, actually, it was not just until a few years ago that Hong Kong, these opposition forces funded by the NED would have vigils, right? Vigils over a massacre that didn't happen, right? So they would spread this propaganda now it's no longer allowed in Hong Kong, the new political administration, as well as uh, just uh, the ways in which the national security law has changed things. That's not allowed. But was a, it, it happened for quite some time, right? So uh, there is a deep bond between the forces of color revolution happening in the region, the targeting of China, and of course, it is related to the broad spectrum of color revolutions, proxy wars, subversion, counterinsurgency is really the word that we should be using when it comes to uh, how these incidents like Tiananmen Square and like others, right, made non, how those Uh, tend to happen. So greetings, everyone. While you're coming in, like the stream. Be sure to subscribe to the channel. Hit that notifications bell. Of course, the best way to support me to sustain my journalism is patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Took a pretty big hit last month. Uh, Please do be sure if you're able to subscribe that uh, you uh, are doing so. That really helps support my work. There are other options in the description as well. And now that I am no longer on Twitter, at least for a week, but, uh, you know, I think from here on out, I'll be posting on alternative sources. Be sure to subscribe to my Telegram. I put that in the chat already. I will put it in the chat again. Uh, Be sure to be subscribing to my Telegram. You can get pretty quick notifications there. Uh, I was resistant at first because I had been so conditioned to using Twitter, but I'm realizing that Telegram is actually very easy to use. It actually takes a lot less time than a tweet. And I think it's a, a much more user-friendly. Twitter has been extremely unfriendly in terms of how we get content out. And the algorithm absolutely destroys our capacity to promote our work. I've always found that to be so frustrating. I share a video like this. I say I'm going live. And I reach about a percent of my followers, less than 1%. But if I do some kind of hot take, right, that uh, will grab eyeballs for the algorithm, then I reach a lot more. And I find that to just be such an indication about how Twitter is like the highest form of monopoly capital in the social media realm in the communications and media realm where everything about Twitter and Facebook, of course, Uh, long gone it was you know completely corrupted long ago all of these social media outlets they are only in it right their only utility right now is their own profits and uh, more and more so we're seeing that with how they are choosing to uh, uh, allow certain people right to spread information uh, misinformation While those who are trying to spread the truth, uh, we are censored, right? And I'm actually going to show you a very interesting later on. I'm going to find it. Uh, I just remembered this. But Caitlin Johnstone had an incredible thread about the suppression. She was very generous and mentioned my situation. And then she shared a very long thread about... Uh, uh, just censorship in general. And I want to show you uh, at the end of, you know, in the second half of this stream, I want to show you, she shared something that uh, Jack Posabiak had shared uh, uh, last year. I believe it was, uh, I can't find it right now, but essentially he was calling for, uh, this guy was calling for, he's a huge right-wing pundit uh, figure. He was calling for, The uh, censorship of anyone who denied, uh, believe it or not, who denied the Tiananmen Square situation. So that is how deep that goes. I don't actually know if I'll be able to find it. She's quite active on Twitter and it doesn't look like it's, um, it's showing up. But he was allowed to stay on, right? So he's literally calling for people to be censored. He's literally calling for people to be wiped off of Twitter. I actually had Prop or Not forces tag me, and I don't think, even think I'll be able to find that, tag me in their celebrations that I've been taking off for a week. I mean, this is how insidious this is. And if you don't remember Prop or Not, they're the very shady group uh, in 2017 that the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos' is Washington Post covered, and they... Uh, were kind of like the first Russiagate blacklist that came out. And it had all sorts of lefty news media, independent media, uh, uh, basically targeted as Russian disinformation. And that triggered all of these changes in the algorithms that these tech corporations have made to suppress our work. So they're celebrating, right? And now, you know, uh, we will talk about this all later. We will get back to this, but now I am pleased to be joined by Camila Escalante. She is a journalist for Casacho News. She, uh, she is. She's been on this show before, and I wanted to have her on because, well, there's a big, uh, there's a big summit happening this week held by the United States, which has been subject to some controversy. So I'm going to bring her on right now. Hello. Hi, Camila. How are you?
1: Hey, Danny. I'm good. How are you?
0: Good, good, good. Thanks for coming by. I know you're very busy. Um, Yeah, I just I wanted to have you on because there's been a lot of conversation leading into the Summit of the Americas. And now it's happening or going to happen. I can't find a schedule anywhere, Uh, but it's supposedly today's the first day. And the latest news that I've heard is that uh, uh, AMLO, Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Alvador, he's not going, he's boycotted. Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba have been shut out predictably but there was a lot of conversation leading into it about well would biden allow at least a cuban official of some kind there if it's not the president so what are your reactions to the summit of the america what can you tell us about it what what's the significance of it um and yeah uh, what are some of the things that you've been covering paying attention to uh, in regards to this uh, occasion Well, right as I was about
1: to join you, the uh, Cuban Foreign Ministry has just released a statement, um, only in Spanish. Of course, we can always translate that on Casa News. That's something we would do, but typically the Cuban Foreign Ministry will get it out shortly in English. But it's basically just a a complete rejection, uh, a denunciation, denouncement of this confirmed exclusion of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela from the Summit of the Americas, but, you know, they've been working on this guest list, supposedly, the State Department and the White House has been working on the guest list for the Summit of the Americas for many months and in recent weeks. And this has included, uh, you know, negotiations, begging, desperate appeals to governments for them to come be a part of this summit in Los Angeles, which is taking place this week, beginning tomorrow. And a lot of governments, um, as you know, governments of Caricom, governments of ALBA, TCP, and uh, you know, around the region, have said that they don't want to participate. Uh, heads of state and governments specifically have said that they themselves don't want to be there, attending in person, if these three governments—Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela—are excluded. And it was only last night that the White House confirmed to uh, you know to, to some outlets. Uh, and their White House correspondents that in fact, those countries would be excluded. This is information that reporters um, of the White House, uh, you know, White House correspondents and, uh, you know, State House accredited uh, uh, reporters have been begging for for a really long time. Uh, you know, week after week, just about uh, at least, let's say, half of all press conferences that were held by Ned Price at the State Department and by the former and now uh, current White House, um, uh, you know, spokesperson for Biden, they've been demanding this information. Who's invited? Are these people going to be excluded? Are they going to be inviting Juan Guaido? What are you going to do if these uh, governments and these uh, presidents, such as AMLO, are not going to attend isn't this important and so this morning we found out that a major blow um, was dealt to biden and uh, the u.s administration because in his morning press conference president lopez obrador confirmed that he will not be confirming given the news that those exclusions of those three countries is imminent And um, he unfortunately will be sending his foreign minister, Ibrard, uh, to participate. Um, But, you know, I think a lot of the governments who who, um, unfortunately will be attending um, in some form, whether it is sending their foreign minister or an ambassador or someone else, uh, they have said that they're going... Um, in order to make sure that these voices are heard, the voices of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. They're going in order to denounce um, their absence, the absence of uh, the you know, different governments of our America. And so they're ensuring that the different voices will be heard. President Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela has said that as well, that his voice and the voice of Venezuela will be heard at the summit in one way or another. And also, you know, he has voiced support for the different uh, counter summits and the different actions that are taking place around Los Angeles and also in Tijuana this coming week. We at Cal News are actually, um, we're covering about three uh, of these mobilizations that are being held um, against the, you know, the failed Biden summit. Uh, We have a correspondent there, Abraham Marquez, and... So just to list them off really quickly, um, we have the People Summit for Democracy, um, which is possibly going to be the largest one. And there's going to be a lot of panels and some really great leftist and anti-imperialist voices will be taking part in some of uh, the panels there. Um, and then there's also the anti-imperialist uh, summit um, of Nuestra America, that is largely um, organized by Unión del Barrio and um, you know, with the participation of Black Alliance for Peace and a lot of other uh, largely LA-based organizations. And there's also the Workers Summit that's taking place in Tijuana, uh, which will have some participation from organizations like Alliance for Global Justice. We'll be covering all of those. So it's gonna be a very busy week. And I just think it's very important to hear the voices of people who are not only part of the Latin American and Caribbean diaspora in the US, but also, you know, we might hear some participation from people from leftist and revolutionary parties from around Latin America who will actually be able to participate in that. And they'll be denouncing the absence of some very critical voices and the most important governments of our region from Biden's failed summit.
0: Yeah, no, I mean that sounds I mean, that sounds like a really busy week for you, but incredibly important. and i'm I'm really happy to hear that there is so much counter, Uh, resistance, so much resistance to this uh, Biden summit. I I find it really interesting that you have both this resistance that's building from various organizations and movements across the left. uh, And you also have, as you said, Biden's failed summit and that the words Biden and fail seem to go together quite frequently of late. Why do you think, I, I mean, at this moment, it seems like one in Latin America there is a sort of a, I would say, a, a growth or consolidation of the left, so to speak. There has been a, a, a recent victories, and it seems like there is more of a bold stance right now to to Biden uh, than there may have been in the past. What do you think is? Uh, dr- drawing this kind of resistance and do you see and as you mentioned there are some contradictions here you mentioned Mexico the president you know AMLO not going but sending a, a for his foreign minister uh i think we also had argentina right alberto fernandez he's going but he's unhappy with what's going on how how do you see these contradictions a boycott versus no boycott and what do you think I mean, what do you think about this? Like, why is this such a failure now? Like, what, why? Like, like why, what is, what is the context for this utter, what seems to be like just a diplomatic nightmare for, for Biden in a very critical time?
1: Yeah, it is a nightmare, and it's an outright failure, and it needs to be said, and everybody feels the same. This is across the board. Everyone knows that. Of course, there are some countries that will always be by the side of the U.S. That is, of course, uh, outgoing Ivan Duque of Colombia. We have a, a number of puppet governments in Latin America, also in the Caribbean, in the case of Jamaica and Haiti. But um, you know, this announcement this morning, this confirmation by President AMLO is very important because what we've heard from the State Department just recently last week in a telephone press conference was that, you know, one of the most important things that's going to be taking place at Biden's, uh, you know, Biden, Almagro's Summit of the Americas, is the signing of an agreement on migration. The issue of migration is something that the Biden administration has used to try to reach out to different countries, including Haiti, including Mexico, and of course, it's an issue that involves Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, very much. You know, the Northern Triangle of Central America, and what we know even beyond Mexico's absence. Of course, uh, you know what they wanted was from, for President Lopez Obrador to be there for the in-person signing, so that at least you know these big major heads would be there together. Um, and they would have that photo op and it would be of great significance and you know, very central to what was to be accomplished in this summit. But not only will AMLO not be there, though his presentation will be, we heard, you know, in previous weeks that even the right wing president of Guatemala was saying that he was not going to be there because of some of the what they consider to be interventionist moves by the United States, commenting on the way in which they run their own country. So, you know, just they they de- denounced, you know, some of the statements. Uh, that were made by the United States. And of course, Naib Bukele, who's also a neoliberal hack, um, who's also, you know, just, uh, you know, in no way any sort of anti-imperialist, he's no sort of revolutionary, certainly not a socialist. He has also, you know, for a, a while now, denounced what he considers to be meddling by the United States and in interventionist statements. And he has also, um, you know, refrained from supporting certain um, certain resolutions in the UN, for example, and has opted for, you know, what they consider to be a ne- more neutral stance. Um, and so there's a chance that Nayib Kelly wouldn't uh, be, be attending. And of course, the Omar Castro, who took office in Honduras as president in January, has also said that she would not be a part in person of the Summit of the Americas If those three heads of state were excluded. Those are the most important countries, apart from, you know, Haiti and some of the, some of those nearby Caribbean nations um, with regards to the issue of migration. So that's a failure. Another failure, of course, is that we have so many countries that have either stood by Cuba and Venezuela, to a lesser extent Nicaragua, um, you know, throughout these recent years, and they are, you know, denouncing that they're not there. But we have also, you know, a lot of countries are, are beginning to rebuild or bolster those relations with Venezuela. Now that Venezuela is bouncing back economically, and they're in a period of, um, you know, very undeniable recovery, and it's unbelievable. Um, and so a lot of countries are wanting to do you know, more and more with Venezuela. And so they're absolutely detesting this. And so it's a very strange time. Um, so as far as you know, how the tide is change, turning in the United States among those organizations um, who'll be participating in some of these counteractions. Um, to me, it's been unbelievable. We have a lot of content that we haven't had time to get out. There's a lot going on here in Bolivia as well, but um, you know we've had a lot of uh, we've done some great interviews and gotten some great sound bites and there's been some very good panels um, of people based in the U. S. Some of them are Chicano, other others are Black American, and others are part of other uh, you know diaspora communities, and you know their level of consciousness. Uh, you know, anti-imperialist fervor uh, of knowledge is just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's its unbelievably high compared to, I think, what we would have seen um, a few years ago. People are really doing some great um, organizing and some great outreach with other, uh, you know, other organizations and popular movements in the countries that they're from or other countries that they're in solidarity with. And so, you know, I think this is has the potential to grow into something much greater. That's what, that's what we heard from some of the organizations, such as Union del Barrio, such as Black Alliance for Peace um, and other Chicano organizations there in the U.S., that they want to use this to bring people together and that Biden actually, his failure of this summit, of this, you know, Biden OAS El Magro summit, is actually doing uh, a great deal of work and a service to the anti-imperialist movement yeah. in the U.S. because it's an opportunity to uh to educate people and to speak about what the issues are and you know they're talking about issues that either won't be addressed at the summit or they're going to be addressed in a very um you know silly way by supposed civil society actors is what they're being called that's what's going on today in terms of what what you had uh, mentioned that you said it's very difficult to find the kind of schedule of the oas uh, summit, and that's of course because it hasn't been really released. They've been making right. it up as they go. They've been trying to figure out who they could get because they've been begging for attendance. So what they're doing is they're bringing in civil society actors. They're bringing in youth and they're bringing in the private sector. And they're doing this because they can't get anyone important or relevant to come here, except for, of course, those same puppets that we know. And so today, they're going to have a day of workshops. Officially, the, the Summit of the Americas begins tomorrow, but today they'll be having a civil society a set of panels and it's a bunch of, you know, youth or supposedly young people, uh, people who really only exist on Twitter. You can't even Google them to find out who they are and what they really do. And they're probably people who were groomed and play in, you know, in areas yeah. or, you know, arenas such as the Oslo Freedom Forum or, you know, are basically on the state department payroll. That to me is not civil society, but they'll be speaking about issues such as indigenous rights and the environment and all these things, but obviously in a very superficial way that's only for the cameras. In contrast, at these different anti-imperialist summits and people summits that are going to be going on in these panels, they're going to be speaking about the issues that impact working class people, both in the U.S. and in Latin America and the Caribbean and throughout the global South.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, When you mention the civil society, I I can only think of just like proxy forces that are all geared toward targeting the very governments that are excluded from this summit of the Americas. And also that's exactly what it is, because, you
1: know, one of the things that they've said in these, you know, a lot of the way we get some of the information about, you know, what's really going to happen at this summit of the americas what the conversations are is actually from going to these right-wing u.s outlets voice of america miami herald uh cnn mm-hmm. outlets like these and what's really interesting is what they're reporting is actually kind of accurate right now because there's yeah. no denying that the u.s policy in venezuela and the blockade and the sanctions and the uh, you know regime change attempt to install Guaido and everything else has failed, and they're actually asking those questions. Uh, you know, they're bringing those questions to the forefront, and they're demanding answers. And so, you know, what the answers have been, uh, you know, repeatedly by the different State Department officials is that there's going to be these that there's going to be representation by these different uh, all these countries that all these countries will be represented in some form. Uh, including the ones who said that they're not going to be attending, or the ones who are excluded by civil society actors. And you know, I, I was reading even in uh, this morning in Bolivian media, Página Siete. It's a right-wing outlet, um, and they released a um, they they released an interview that they conducted with a State Department official who came here to Bolivia in recent days, perhaps last week, and he. Um, you know, it was not an official. I don't think that anyone would know. Um, and he said that they did attempt to get a hold of uh, President Luis Arce of Bolivia and government officials and they weren't able to. So they basically just came here in order to hold a meeting and, you know, conduct business with their own embassy. It's really sad. And um, Luis Arce himself has, you know, said that he's not going to be attending the meeting. He will actually be. Um, sending uh, representatives. Unfortunately, one of them may include the president of the Senate, Andronico Rodriguez, who's also the vice president of the six federations, which is the campesino union that's associated with our outlet. But he he said that um, the the State Department Department official said that, um, you know, he, he said that, well, Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela won't be there. We will have, you know, citizens, private sector, youth and civil society, um, as well as, you know, in the case of Bolivia. I mean, these are just random people, but they're not so random because some of these are people who've actually, you know, had a long history of, again, being on the State Department payroll itself. So they will be expressing, you know, the, the sorts of lines that we hear all the time talking about authoritarianism, saying that it's political persecution against Jeanine Añez, for example. Or against um, you know the the State Department paid CIA actors in Cuba. Those are the sorts of issues they're going to be raising. Those are not the issues that people are concerned with here in Latin America at all. People are concerned about imperialism. They're concerned about uh, you know protection and defense of their resources and nat- national sovereignty. And they believe that this the pathway to economic uh, prosperity and success is to be able to control our resources, get a hold of our uh, you know, of our currency, be able to produce, expand production, trade, have amicable relations with our neighbors and with, you know, whoever we want to overseas and develop jointly with China, with Russia and with Iran. Mm. These are the types of things we want implemented. And of course, they will not be speaking about that in any of Almagro's forums.
0: No, no. I mean, uh, yeah, that you, you said it correctly. I mean, the, the gap between the direction that latin america has been heading in and u.s interests couldn't be higher it couldn't be further and further apart there couldn't be more difference and it seems like i was just thinking as you were talking especially about how you know before you were saying uh, that uh the this is like a failure right that biden uh, this summit is a failure It seems like the, the, and you mentioned Guatemala and Guatemala's (laughs) displeasure, it reminded me of when Kamala Harris visited Guatemala, and what she said couldn't have been more insulting diplomatically, where she basically was talking about what largely, I mean, it's a foreign policy issue because the United States is at the root of the migration that occurs from Guatemala uh, upwards to the United States, but... She was framing it as almost like a domestic issue, but speaking directly to the people of Guatemala and to the Guatemalan <laughs> government saying, don't come, do not come to the United States. And then you had six, uh, I believe it was six months later, five or six months later, the Biden administration, Joe Biden said that Latin America is the U.S.'s front yard. It's more important than just the backyard. It's the front yard. Oh, speaking in this like new modernized kind of Monroe Doctrine, language all of this is seen and then now you have six months later after that yeah you, know, you have this summit of the americas which is almost like a political expression of this treatment that the Biden administration has been uh, leveling on latin america and you mentioned a few things there that i'd like you to speak about right you said the word unfortunately a few times could you speak to because i think it's hard for even people on the left, but even just especially the general population in the United States, you know, to understand Latin America, the politics, the move, you know, what's happening there, this left uh, kind of uh, upsurge and insurgency that's been going on for quite a while, but um, it's sort of had, a, I think, a, a, a recovery period after uh, many setbacks, many of them US backed in, in so many countries. Could you speak about? sort of the complexity of it all, because it seems like the left governments are navigating a whole lot, especially around how the United States uh, is interfering in their political processes. Uh, Could you speak to that? Could you speak to the uh, overall complexities of the situation? I've heard you speak uh, in other places about it, so I'd love for our viewers to, to get your analysis of of what why it is that there has to be kind of like this hedging. Some leftists want to be like, no, just just go for the gusto, just like you know, do what you do, you know, uh pure, you know, like, like if you're not ideologically pure politically pure, then you're you know kind of negated. But it's it's more complex than that. It's more complicated. Could you speak to that about Latin America's left movements?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a whole spectrum that we could talk about. So of course. In, you know, response to the exclusion of these countries, we've heard some governments, um, you know, uplift and try to uh, promote as an alternative, ALBA-TCP, uh, CARICOM, and um, and and CELAC. Uh, CELAC is the uh, community of Caribbean and Latin American states. Um, we have people such as Alberto Fernandez, the president of of Argentina. He's also the pro tempore president of CELAC, And of course, as you said, he will be attending in person uh, the Summit of the Americas. But he's also denounced on repeated occasions, uh, not only the exclusion of these countries, but also the blockade on Cuba and Venezuela. And he's, of course, uh, restarted, uh, resumed those diplomatic relations that are so important with Venezuela. And so, some of the, you know, some of the other uh, countries and governments that are represented in the region who have, um, you know, been very vocal against the Biden administration for this uh, decision are the Caribbean states, and I think it's very important and represented very well within ALBA TCP that a lot of these countries are not um, ex- explicitly socialist. Uh, some of them don't uh, necessarily. Uh, characterize themselves as being anti-imperialist, and um, in the case of, for example, uh, Gaston Brown, who's the prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda, he's someone who um, has denounced the decisions by the U.S. has called them exclusionary, uh, but he has said that he himself is, you know, someone who has interest. In um, personal interests in the private sector, he's a businessman, um, and that he doesn't necessarily see eye to eye with countries like Venezuela. But he has repeatedly uh, defended Venezuela's right to self-determination and, you know, protection, defense of its own sovereignty. Uh, this is another, you know, another sort of. Uh, you know, category of countries that we see in Latin America. But apart from that, just in general, we're seeing a number of countries, and this is not widely reported in, in the English-speaking media, although these are English-speaking Caribbean states. But a lot of these states have been really, uh, you know, strengthening their bilateral relations with Russia and China. And they've been doing the sort of, you know, the sort of trade and uh, cooperation that they want to do not only with you know Cuba and Venezuela, which they've long had medical cooperation with, um, you know, you know, among which they have shared resources and vital supplies during uh, environmental disasters during the pandemic and at other times. And so you know not only that, but they're they're really looking overseas and they're strengthening those relationships. And of course, you know, joining in on projects, Um, with aims at furthering development with countries like China. And this is something that the State Department and the US government in general is very weary of. They're very concerned about because it means that you don't have to be the most revolutionary government on the continent. You don't have to be President Nicolas Maduro or the uh, Communist Party of Cuba in order to begin to look away and look for other alternatives towards development and towards reaching some of the goals of their societies. Um, But I would like to say that I think it's, you know, it's not just that these governments are rejecting the sound of the Americas because of its exclusionary nature and because of the well It goes without saying, but a lot of countries were actually very angry following the coup in Bolivia. They're very resentful and they have rejected in many instances, the actions of uh, Secretary General of the OAS Luis Almagro and of the OAS itself being used as a tool for intervention specifically in electoral processes, but also in other cases such as in Venezuela, it wasn't even just an election, it was just intervening in general. as was the case in Nicaragua and in Cuba, but they are also rejecting US hegemony in general. And they're saying that, you know, they may have voted one way or the other in the United Nations General Assembly, and they may have made some statements in rejection of Russia's military operation when it began in the first few months, but they do not agree with the actions of the United States and Europe and their allies and NATO, and the way in which this conflict, which was generated by Europe and the global north, is having effects on our people here in the global south. It's making life more expensive. It's making it more difficult to get our hands on necessary supplies, it's making gas more expensive. And this is a rejection. You know, their um, hesitance to further involve themselves in this summit, in the OAS, and anything else proposed by the US is a rejection of that US European dominance. And it's also understood not only by the government, but by actual people of the Caribbean and Latin America as white supremacy, as supremacism. And, you know, people are starting to see the way in which this has nothing to do with us. This has nothing to do with us. And there are, you know, implications that are not only, you know, anti-poor, anti-working class, but severely racist. And, you know, the kind of, Uh, the, the kind of discourse we hear from Europe, from the European Union, is extraordinarily racist. And so people are seeing that as well. And I think that's going to carry on beyond this summit. We're going to see the continuation of these countries looking to the east to, you know, to develop different relationships and not look to the U.S. anymore. We don't need the U.S. to stand between us and our neighbors and our potential uh, collaborators, our
0: potential friends around the world. Whew, that was, I mean, that's just, I, I, I mean, I, there's, uh, there's nothing I, you just put the hammer down. I mean, that's exactly how, that's exactly how I see it. I mean, what you're saying is so important. It speaks to this like growing multipolar world that I know you and others have been talking about here. We talk about it a lot in this channel. And when you talk about the complexities of even maybe we've characterized them as more capitalist oriented governments, or even if we go so far and call them puppet states, but even these governments that have a vested interest in the international financial system, the U S dominant dominated international financial system, even if they have been politically close to the United States, there is this, I think, growing factor of the U S and Europe are literally making it so their interests, the interests of their clients are infringed upon. And so what what our governments, the same as has happened on the African continent, all across the African continent, it's when your policy, your general policy, especially economic policies, when you're waging economic warfare at this level, now you mentioned the Russia military operation and the US and Europe's response, that level of economic warfare has had such, I think, a cascading effect on the world the entire world but especially uh, global south countries that rely on energy that rely on russia's um uh that rely on russia's energy and just aid and that also rely on a a relatively stable world economy where prices aren't it's like
1: distracting me a little bit (laughs) hold on
0: no please cross oh sorry I'll mute you while you're setting up. No worries. Um, but yeah, it seems like there's this, uh, uh, you know, growing understanding regionally that uh, the United. Oh, we lost Camilla. Okay. Well, hopefully she'll be back. Um, so anyway, that's you know we'll wait for Camilla to come back. But uh, there she is. As I was, there you are, no worries. I will-
1: um... I'm getting a lot of messages. I just wanna say, because it's very important, you know, Anya's, um, her legal team failed to stall the trial in the golpe de estado dos case. um, And it's supposed to restart this afternoon. And so a lot of people are kind of curious because what it sounds like is she might actually receive a sentence today. Uh, for this is everything that took place before the coup when she swore herself in not the crimes such as the massacres that took place after she was into power but continue i'm sorry (laughs) no no
0: that's really i mean not only that really important information but it's totally related because i think that i think one of the reasons too that u.s moves even like soft power moves like though that was held in bolivia which led to that massive coup i think one of the reasons that US influence is not having the same effect anymore. It's a it's global phenomenon. There, the US, US policy and Europe's policy, which is now literally just US policy at this point in terms of this economic warfare and everything else, it is having such a negative impact on the global economy, the world economy and on just the capacity to breathe i mean that's how it feels it feels like a lot of most of the global society just can't breathe under the this arrangement anymore and it doesn't matter if you're i mean it does matter but it, it, the 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 character of a certain society let's say as you were saying or Antigua they're they're just because they have vested interest in the world financial system close to the united states maybe politically doesn't mean that they're just going to do what europe has done which is shoot itself in the foot and compl- it, because that has political consequences a lot of even governments that are completely aligned with imperialism they it, because of so many reasons uh neocolonialism all of that doesn't mean that they can deal with constant instability and expect to, to expect to remain uh, in power and i think the multipolar world is bringing about a situation where Uh, Countries don't need the United States, don't need Europe. uh, They don't need to rely on them so much anymore. And it's causing a lot of friction. And I think it's weakening U.S. policy everywhere. And I think that's why we're seeing this contradiction.
1: I mean, it's just, you know, any small, tiny bit of fake credibility that the, the European Union, these European NATO states and the U.S. and Canada would have had before is going straight out the door. I was just laughing in a, in a chat with some friends um, about, you know, th- this, this tweet that we saw that's saying anti-Russian sanctions are working in Germany. Supermarket chain Rue warns only that critical, that only one critical item is allowed per shopper. The items are pasta, flour, and other groceries. There's a name for it, food rationing. And so, you know, it's really funny because then some UK person comes on here and says, it's a clever master plan to reverse and stop inflation. It was used in the Great Depression by Eisenhower. It works better than interest rate hikes that completely fail. They're saying, this woman, This white woman from the UK is saying that, you know, rationing these products, which are very normal products, is, you know, being done deliberately and that it was used in the Great Depression by Eisenhower. My question is, did she make the same comment when people had to stand in lines for basic necessities in 2018 in Venezuela? Has she made the same comment about Cuba when there were shortages of some essential products in past years? She's saying that it's like a smart idea that they're rationing pasta, flour, and other basic groceries. And you look at the picture of the grocery shelf, and it's literally, um, you know, the most the, the most common. Uh, grocery store items such as the pasta brand Barilla. And we have that here. And guess what, throughout this entire conflict and prior and after, the price of Barilla, unless something happens at the source, is not going to change because we haven't seen inflation here in Bolivia. And these things are just as available by quantity as they were before by stock. Mm. Every every store still has them. And it's at the same price as when I came here, uh, you know, three years ago. Nothing has changed. The price of bread hasn't changed. The price of chicken and and meat is not supposed to change because there are government controls and because the government, through its various uh, institutions, through its various ministries, is making sure that they supply the producers with the things they need, such as wheat, such as uh, corn, maize. Um, and, and other things in order to produce, you know, the things that they produce that are most consumed here in this country. The prices are not supposed to go up. Not only that, but the forward thinking of Bolivia's economist president and, you know, the rest of its government is actually benefiting countries of the region. We're benefiting other, not we, because I'm not Bolivian, of course, I'm not the government or the producer. But, you know, they are producing fertilizer they are going to supply uh fuel for countries like argentina and peru and even brazil and so you know these are the sorts of things that happen when these governments speak to one another when the producers and the small farmers the campesinos um and the different uh you know producers of quinoa of coffee um you know and so forth uh you know are there sitting at the table, quite literally, with the federal government, with the national government, and with the president, speaking about the uh, the fears they have, the concerns they have, the shortages that they foresee coming, and, you know, the fear they have that that could impact their ability to produce. They're resolving those things here at the table, here in La Paz, and they're making sure that there's no supply chain interruptions like we see in the United States and other mm. parts of the world, and not only that, I mean, there are several ideas for what, you know, Mercosur and selac is and can be. But, um, you know, these, uh, these are, you know, mechanisms for not only, you know, regional integration, but, you know, economic uh, cooperation, and, you know, and, and trade areas, and as well as the Andean community. And so, you know, we're getting, we have the capacity in the future um, beyond what we do now to get the supplies we need from our neighbors. We always say that Latin America and the Caribbean and Africa and the global South are resource rich areas. We have everything we need to be able to survive. And we just need to find the ways to get the supplies we need from our own countries and produce them here or get them from our neighbors and be able to share at fair prices, Um, for the producer, for the consumers. um, And we do not need to go overseas. The State Department right now has this campaign. And they're making graphics and videos. And they have talking points about the way in which Russia is denying 20 or 30% of the world or whatever the hell, uh, you know, access to wheat, um, and anything else they produce, as if it's owed to the United States government, as if it's owed to the imperialists of the EU. It's absolutely not, first of all. And second of all, second of all, how funny and ironic that countries like Bolivia, that has historically been so deprived of its right to development and economic resources and has been literally raped and robbed and uh, everything else, and then it's still struggling, with development right now, has all of the resources that these other countries are crying about and is able to share with its neighbors. Venezuela is sharing with its neighbors amid hurricane season, the start of hurricane season and other uh, you know environmental disasters. We're able to find ways to help one another through Alba TCP, but also just through regular bilateral uh, relations and cooperation. This is something that the, the EU and Uh, U.S. and Canada do not understand but it's being implemented here so the more we can find ways to produce here, to share here, to find more efficient ways involving new technology, technology transfer with countries like Iran and Russia and China, The, the better off we'll be. And Europe will look like a fucking dick. Like they're just going to look absolutely <laughs> stupid. They can sit there and keep talking about right. how Russia is denying them the right to Barilla pasta, but we still have pasta we don't need Barilla either because we have, we're gonna have our own factories here with our own high quality pasta.
0: Barilla, oh man, Barilla is such trash too so yes play, like that's that, that that's a definitely a clarion call to uh to to continue that sovereign development I mean what you describe. I mean it's just the beauty of socialism I mean food is a commanding height of the economy right it's it's based in the land it's based it's a it's a, it's a central need of a society and you know when you mention something like technology transfer Uh, It made me think of China because, uh, as you said, China and Latin America are getting closer and closer. And a lot of the things that they're complaining about Latin America, they complain about China. Like China, yeah, China did demand technology transfer. Because what are you going to – are you going to allow a foreign entity, foreign corporation to invest in your country and not get anything out of it? Are you going to let them just exploit your country? No, a sovereign – Sovereign development is not based on allowing foreign investment to just take everything and you get nothing. No, technology transfer is a very low and demand affair, uh, that's part of fair a fair business relationship where it's like yeah, you can have x market access, you can have a xyz what you need here and what we're going to get back if you have a strong government that has this kind of orient socialist orientation we're going to learn from what you're doing and then we're going to do it later on in order to build up and develop the country and have uh you know a diverse economy one that can meet the needs of people and I think uh, what you describe what Bolivia is doing what you describe in Venezuela you mentioned the low inflation there I mean uh, it's incredible that a country that was having inflation at 10,000%, not more than two years, like 10,000%, 99% of revenue stripped from the country because of sanctions. And yet now the country, because of a socialist governance system is able to adjust to that, is able to do what's best for both its the country and the region to be able to lower inflation in that way. I think it's like less than, it's like one percent right now amid this in, intense conflict where everything is going up and as you describe europe <laughs> europe is being hit incredibly hard and it seems like these imperialists they cannot help but just try to explain it away that oh yeah food rationing that's just a policy that we did back in the day to help stabilize things it's like no The the capitalists are just literally stealing and robbing from us right now. There is, as as you demonstrate a lot in America there with examples like Bolivia, there's no reason why this needs to happen (laughs) like this. This does not need to be happening right now. Uh, And all of the various justifications are just putting wool over our eyes so we don't see that it is this. Imperialist, this capitalist system that's just stealing everything and they're trying to steal everything from Latin America. And that's why they, there's such conflict there. Uh, I, anyway, I'll stop. That's why there's such a conflict with what's going on there and why the United States is so hostile.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think another going back to the reasons why some Caribbean heads of states and government decided to refrain from attending some of the Americas and are hesitant. To get involved, you know, further with the OAS, which they are, you know, they continue to be members of the Organization of the American States. The only countries that have really, uh, you know, pulled out or are in the process of, of course, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. But you know, some some of the other, you know, uh, reservations they have is, you know, the Caribbean and Caricom have had, you know, I would say three major issues that they always talk about, that are very important for the global South. Um, And, you know, we don't hear enough about them from the right wing puppet governments of Latin America, non-Caribbean Latin America. One of those things, it goes without saying, is climate change. They speak about it in every single intervention, in every forum internationally and in their own you know national press conferences and everything else the way in which disproportionately climate change is having effects on on uh you know the caribbean region uh, especially on small uh countries that don't have a lot of resources small economies and the way in which you know we are impacted here but you know the, the the effects of climate change and everything it does have a source we do have people who can uh, countries that contribute more to environmental degradation and that's of course the global north and how they need to be held to account and that includes um, you know that includes them taking further steps in countries like the United States to not only you know change their own policies and the policies that uh, govern the multinationals. Uh, there, but also, you know, contribute to contribute to the recovery efforts in the global south. They've also talked about, um, you know, how difficult it is for small economies um, with the debt burden that they have. And they've also spoken, very importantly, about maintaining Latin America and the Caribbean as a zone of peace, as outlined by CELAC. And so, you know, this is one of the things that people are very concerned about, and the concern really intensified since 2018 with the, you know, the, this hybrid war on Venezuela, and you know, this included all of these uh, these different threats from the Trump administration about a military option on the table against the president, the against Venezuela, but of course with the aims of getting rid of President Nicolás Maduro and his government. They made all sorts of threats, all sorts of comments. And of course, we know, you know, the whole story. They've planned all sorts of coup attempts, assassination attempts. Um, from Colombian territory with use of U.S. and Colombian mercenaries and everything else. But the the leaders of the Caribbean began realizing that they're increasing patrols under the guise of stopping narco activity in the Caribbean Sea, in the Atlantic. And um, what they're really just doing is further militarizing our region for no fucking reason. Why, what what is what is happening in our region that they have to send more, you know, more warships that they have to uh, position themselves in all these different countries, increase the presence at their existing bases, carry out all these drills. These South Command drills uh, that are being carried out jointly with other countries, as well as some of the military exercises, including European countries and their colonies. And territories here in the Americas are just an extension of NATO. And I think that people are really starting to see these governments, uh, for example, Barbados, Mia Motley, uh, Prime Minister there, and obviously the more outspoken ones, which have been the Prime Minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Ralph Gonzales, the Prime Minister of Dominica, Roosevelt Skerrit, both of which were very good friends with Hugo Chavez. Um, you know, these people have been Alerting, uh, you know, the rest of Caricom and our region for a long time that we don't need that sort of militarization in our region. There's no reason to have that sort of hostility. Venezuela doesn't have its own hostility with Caribbean states. It might have a border dispute, a territorial dispute with Guyana, um, and things like that. But that is very specific. That needs to be held, you know, in an international court or you know in in dialogue between the two countries but there's no reason to have a country which is the United States that considers us to be their backyard coming down here and positioning military all over that's another reason why you know they are on alert they're discussing this and it's something that they agree with with you know the rest of the region why are we having these drills and so the caribbean states are not Uh, non-NATO major allies. They haven't been deemed that. Argentina has, Colombia has, Brazil has a relationship uh, with the United States. Um, But but these other countries have nothing to do with it and they have no part in it. So I think that this is another thing that um, we'll see them continue to raise in international forums and hopefully this week as well for those that are participating in Biden's failed summit.
0: Yeah, no the militarization, I mean this has been going on for so long in America and and now that the political situation has changed so dramatically it, it, in the Caribbean too, it's it, it would be incredible uh, should that issue be raised because I think that it would only strengthen the global forces that are Kind of that are building uh, against imp- the military component of imperialism. It's not talked about so much with Latin America either anymore, as much as it uh, maybe was during maybe the Contra wars, etc. Uh, there's still, I mean, the U.S. military presence is very heavy in Latin America, as you said in the Caribbean. I mean, look at just what's happened to Haiti in the last, uh, uh, you know, several decades. It's just been abs- an absolute nightmare. And so as you know, as the United States continues to fail, I think this milit- this this reliance on the military becomes more and more important. We talk about that a lot here. That's why the Asia-Pacific against China is so militarized. That's why Eastern Europe, the Baltics, all of that is so militarized now via NATO, via all these other uh, military formations that the U.S. seems to be thinking of every uh, half year or so. And of course in Latin America uh, very similarly. And I think uh, all of it has to do with hegemony. And it seems like the appetite for U.S. hegemony is waning. It's becoming uh, less and less desirable. And and uh, it's it's kind of having this effect, I think, of unifying. And, and, I, and I think I always say it's it's unfair to say that the militarization, that endless war is the principal reason to unify anywhere, right? anywhere in the global south, which has such common interests across the board. Uh, that are very positive. But it only serves, I think, to accelerate that process because, well, guns, proxy wars, these kind of things, you know, know, bombings, military, all of these things do pretty heavy damage to societies and, and create so much instability.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And on both levels, both the level of the government and of social movements, we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of rejection of U.S. security doctrine and a rejection of the U.S. war on drugs and, um, you know, everything else having to do with their, um, you know, supposed uh, strategies against, um, you know, narco trafficking, against everything else here on our continent has all been either deliberately failed or, you know, it was designed to be that way or whatever, whatever the case, we're seeing a huge rejection of it. If you watch, um, if you follow Evo Morales' social media, he has spoken out a lot against NATO expansionism, both around the world and also specifically here in our region, and as has President Nicolás Maduro and his Bolivarian government. And so on the government level, You know, we have a lot of people who've spoken out against it and they have even proposed maybe are planning a number of uh, conferences against NATO. And then on the social movement level, you know, in, for example, Panama, there is a huge rejection every time some sort of Washington official comes to visit the government there. People remember the terrorist actions that took place, the bombings that took place just as recently as the 90s and other uh and and several other uh instances of intervention and violence against the panamanian people in which panamanian citizens uh died who were not any sort of uh military or combatants or anything and so you know we are seeing a, a lot of you know this, this issue is arising in the case of brazil um you know We are going towards an election that's going to take place at the beginning of October in which um, hopefully uh, former president Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva will be elected um, after his political imprisonment and the lawfare that was waged against him. Um, Obviously the polls favor him, but you know, one of the issues that they'll have to take on if Lula and the workers party is elected there during the October elections. Is the issue of the militarization of cities and of the country in general, and the violence against, uh, you know, against the poor, that greatly affect the favelas and the poor areas of Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo, and all the other uh, cities of the country. Um, you know, this is um, this is part of the U.S. sort of security doctrine that has been um, exported to countries of Latin America that we see imposed in El Salvador by Nayib Bukele, where they are not only um, arresting people in mass, everybody is, you know, considered guilty without any sort of a trial, um, treating everyone as their violent criminal gang member offenders. Um, and in the case of Brazil, just killing people on the spot in what accounts as massacres, slaughters. In in the poorest neighborhoods of particularly Rio, and of course the people who are being killed are young teenagers, even children, women that have nothing to do with anything, um, you know, just people on their way to different errands and school and everything else. And it's not something that's spoken about, but I th- you know outside of Brazil because it happens so often. Um, wow. But I think it needs to be understood as part of this failed. Um, you know, strategy against crime, against gangs, against, uh, you know, multi uh, or transnational criminal organizations or whatever it is that they say it is, It is these have all been implemented by the United States with advising from the United States, a lot of times with in-person, uh, you know, uh, people being sent from the United States to implement these policies nationally within these different countries. In the case of Ecuador, um, just as one final example, the, the the war and conflict in Colombia that has taken place over decades and the resurgence of paramilitarism and the high levels of crime and massacres and killings, um, you know, which have you know, resulted in the killings of social leaders, of environmental activists, of uh, campesinos and of uh, signatories of the 2016 peace accord has spilled into Ecuador in the worst of ways. And, you know, Ecuador is seeing just unbelievably high rates of violent crime across the countries, Um, you know, in the beginning of Lenin Moreno's uh, neoliberal puppet government. In 2017, we began to see a little bit of crime seeping in from Colombia on Ecuador's northern border with Colombia. Now we're seeing prison massacres every month. We're seeing people being decapitated on the streets. We're seeing executions of people like TV presenters as a form of terrorism, you know, we're seeing extortions, things that we didn't see under the 10 years of the Citizens' Revolution of Rafael Correa. And it needs to be understood that this is all the result of the close relationships of Colombia and Ecuador with Washington and the policies that are being implemented with those countries, you know, allowing military bases into their, into their territories. In the case of Colombia, it's seven military active Bases right now, um, and a lot of DEA and other uh, official presence of Washington and Colombia. And after you know ex- expelling some of that U.S. presence under Rafael Correa in Ecuador, they have since allowed the U.S. to return, and this is what we're seeing right now.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the struggle. Conti- I mean, the struggle continues, uh, and it seems like. The securitization. I mean, this. I mean, the deep legacies of all of this, and and how enveloped it is in uh, the region. I mean, it, it's a struggle that's definitely ongoing. And I remember Glenn Ford telling me um uh when uh, one of the last times I was able to be with uh, be with him in person, uh, he would always talk about Brazil because he visited Brazil under the first Lula uh, administration. He said he was like they have some things they need to deal with when it comes to the security forces, when it comes to, uh, you mentioned the terror, uh, the kind of like the terrorization of poor people. Uh, he was like, a lot of those poor people are black people and it creates a lot of tension and it's a political, you know, it, it creates a lot of opportunities to politically undermine something like the workers party at any point. It's something that needs to be Addressed, but it's you know it's very complicated as you said though because of these deep relationships that go that have such that go back for so long. But you're right; they need to be addressed, and it's and they're going to have to be addressed because of these situations they don't get better just because you know other areas are being addressed. That this is something that has to do with sovereignty, everything we were talking about, multipolarity, sovereignty. This is a huge component of it to be able to have security forces, military forces not not be so attached to to the United States and to the, its a massive war machine which uh, will do anything. This is like the the line, it's the first and it's the last line of defense for the United States right now at the moment when it comes to its dominance in Latin America. Um, you can react to that. I also want to ask you one last question. Um, I want to ask you about the work you have upcoming, what you're covering. I know you're covering a lot of the anti-imperialist work happening. You did mention a few things that you haven't been able to get out there, but just a kind of like a plug for Casaccio News and, um, and that sort of thing to end as well, to end our conversation. But I'll let you react to also what I said and, <laughs> um, you know, uh, your plug.
1: Yeah, I think it's high time that, you know, countries around the region, not just, you um you know, not just like the sort of Alba friends and friends of Alba, but other countries start looking at the examples of the revolutionary uh, Sandinista government of Nicaragua, um, you know, the successes under the revolutionary Cuban government and Bolivia and applying them at home. And with regards to what we're speaking about, I mean, the most important, one of the most important things um, would be the, the nationalization of the anti-drug strategy and you know expelling u.s military bases expelling um you know their anti-drug dea um you know forces there and any other unnecessary uh presence of the u.s the u.s only needs to be in other countries with its embassy, and its embassy should not um, have any right to meddle in the affairs of that country, as per the Vienna Convention. It's very straightforward that they, you know, have done m- far beyond what is what is legal under international law. But um, you know, one of the things that we're go- doing, you know, at Caltech News, that we think is very important, and we hope to do in some of the upcoming um interviews and coverage that we'll be doing is you know highlighting some of these successf- successes with regards to the economy and production um, and you know in the case of venezuela there's a lot of new um, you know activation of production productive forces because you know the reason why venezuela was so affected by uh the unilateral course of measures of the us and europe um in 2018 2019 2020 is because you know they didn't have um, a lot of the sort of uh you know self sufficiency in terms of food sovereignty and the production levels that we have seen for a while in Nicaragua and now in Bolivia and so you know they were really affected but going forward if you know sanctions are maintained or anything they're going to be finding ways around that and it's very important to look at the models that have been implemented in Nicaragua and Bolivia, and why they've been able to maintain such low inflation rates, um, and, and why you know they can start thinking about that cooperation with other countries, in terms of technology, in terms of culture, um, you know, educational ex- exchanges and stuff like that. But they know that they'll be uh, producing their own food uh, within the country and the you know the the necessary basic supplies. Um, for the rest of the week, like you said, we'll be covering, um, these anti-imperialist, um, and anti-OAS, anti-Biden, um, actions that are taking place there in Los Angeles, and we'll be following anything that happens here with regards to the justice, justice, um, for the crimes of the coup, um, including, you know, the Jean- Jeanine Anya's case, which has been, multiple times stalled, uh, but there's a lot of other things, um, interesting things that are happening here as well. So you'll see lots of that and yeah, I think that's it.
0: <laughs> Great, no, it's not, it sounds like a lot of work, a lot of good work. Uh, I put in the description of this video links to Casacho news and to your Twitter. So be sure to support all of the work, make sure that you're following, make sure that you're subscribing. Um, Thanks so much, Camille. I mean, this was great. <laughs> I mean, such, uh, I mean, the analysis was just on point. Thanks so much for spending a time with me this afternoon. And yeah, good luck with everything. We'll definitely have you on other soon. thing. I, mean,
1: I, I think yeah. I already said this, but obviously the Brazilian election is something that's on the top of, of our list. But yeah. also, you know, uh, as Glenn Ford made his own reflections on Brazil, I mean, I I don't know like if you know people from the US who spent some time in Brazil but it literally is for me it's the most important election you know this year It is a country that, you know, changed my life and is just very important. It's like the center of the universe for me. It's a country we really don't report on a lot. Mm -hmm. And obviously some of the reason is because, you know, there's kind of this divide between Spanish speaking, Latin America, English speaking, Latin America and Caribbean, and the, you know, Brazilian, uh, Portuguese, Brazilian. But, you know, that's something that we want to overcome, provide some more translation, some more context to what's going on there, both visually through videos, through some of our social movement collaborators and some, uh, you know, will we'll also be there in person. I'll be going to Brazil later this year, but it's a very mm. important election. And, you know, it's just like a huge population of our continent and world huge. is in Brazil and it's a major economy. And, you know, as exactly. an article that was just published this morning, I, I'm not sure if it's this morning, but by Brazil wire, you know, apparently they convinced Washington was able to convince Bolsonaro to go to the U S to participate in this summit. So now that will be the focal point because everything else, failed and AMLO, you know who, who they were treating as the most important part of the summit won't be there uh-huh. so you know this is very important with the res- with you know the, the the new emphasis on um on the BRICS and alternative yes. um alternative currencies um and and ev- everything else uh you know brazil will become more important so we're gonna have our eyes on that in terms of Jeez. um electoral processes this year
0: Yeah, no, we'll definitely have to have you back on to talk about that leading into the election as things start to develop, as we start to know more about how things are going. And of course, I mean, we can't put it past the imperialists. There will be, I'm sure, a lot to talk about in terms of, uh, because it seems like Lula is is doing quite well in terms of just how he is perceived and and how he is going to do um, uh, even just early on. So it's going to be very interesting and it's super important as you said it's a send, it's like it is it, in Latin America it's really the focal point of everything we've been talking about on the global at the global scale in terms of moving towards sovereign development, multipolarity, all of this, which leads more into more favorable conditions to uh, the uh, knock on wood, the eventual <laughs> collapse of capitalism. I mean it's in, it's it's critically important for uh, Lula for the Workers Party to uh, regain, uh, their rightful place um, uh, in in Brazil's go- government. So, with that said, though, thank you so much, Camilla. I really appreciate it. I'll be sticking around for another half hour or so, but we will be back with you again soon. We'll we'll definitely have you on as things develop. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. We also have a patron I should have plugged, but um, thank you so much. I'm really sorry to hear about your censorship. Obviously, that's the same reason why I left my old Twitter is because that Twitter is censored and you you never see anything on it and it it just became unusable. So, um, you know, solidarity with you and we'll also look for, you you know, other better platforms to use going forward and, you know, following you now on Telegram.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, definitely go to the website. Can people get to the Patreon on the website? Can, is it, is it, is it? Um, Yeah, you can find
1: it on the website and on uh, News Twitter.
0: It's linked at the top. Okay. All right. Well, definitely check that out, guys. Thanks so much, Camilla. And we will talk again very soon. Thank you. Uh, all right, everyone. So stick around for another half hour or so. I will be on. I want to talk to you about what's been going on with me, um, just to set the record straight a bit. There's been a lot of confusion. Uh, first of all, that was a great, I mean, it's always great with Camilla. I mean, you know, someone who's so dedicated who does her, to the craft and also the politics and, and uh, so close to it and with the experience and, uh, I think just the correct orientation it's just it's just great to have that kind of energy on this program I really appreciate it it was a great talk now to what um what I wanted to talk about with all you please do continue like the stream share it subscribe to the channel all that good stuff support me on patreon support me um, in all the links in the description there's so many options but patreon.com High Fong is the best I'm locked out on Twitter as I said I wasn't able to go live about this when it happened. I had way too many things to do. Uh, I generally don't go live on Sundays anyway. So I woke up the morning of um, Sunday, yesterday. Uh, what was that, June 5th? And I just retweeted the day before on June 4th a thread that I did on Tiananmen Square on the so-called massacre. And I thought... I'm just going to bed. This thread, the thread was kind of stalling. And I was very suspicious about that because it had started out quite well. A lot of people were sharing it. It was a trending topic. And suddenly it started to sputter. So at the end of the evening, I was like, let me just retweet it, see what's going on. Lo and behold, I probably got either mass reported by ASB. I don't know, ASBI slash anti-China, anti-communist, all these bots slash unfortunate real people. Um Or Twitter flagged it. I don't know which one. They never tell you. So I woke up and I got a message that I was locked out for at least a week. I couldn't touch that mess. Once I hit the touch screen, it went to a completely different message saying that I needed to delete the tweet in order for the countdown to begin. Uh, But it it didn't even say countdown to begin. It just said I needed to delete the tweet or appeal because I violated their rules of violence and harassment and inciting it and all this nonsense. I'll show you. I can pull up my Instagram. I'll share my screen because I did publish the thread or at least a version of the thread on Instagram. Um, But for me, right, what's so important here is that I, first of all, don't know when I'm coming back. It's just like a complete and utter egregious example of censorship. It's just like with a snap of fingers Uh, just, you know, a blink of the eye, Twitter, these platforms, big tech platforms, monopolies, they can just decide what is legitimate information and what isn't. And as I said before, right, right wing pundit, uh, figure, celebrity, whatever he is, Jack Pasebiak, he in 2021 said, Oh, well, everyone, you know, the year before, uh, of the last anniversary of Tiananmen Square incident, he said that Twitter should start censoring people. This is supposedly a free speech advocate saying that Twitter should start censoring people, whoever is questioning Tiananmen Square, whoever's questioning the narrative, doing the bidding of the Communist Party of China. These forces are allowed to stay. They're allowed to be there, right? The, the far right, the, the actual right wing, uh, those who have influenced, those who are very connected to the political establishment, of the neoliberals, the neocons, all of them, they're allowed to stay. And they're allowed to call for the cancellation, for the erasure, for the censorship of anyone they don't like. And that's exactly what has happened over the course, especially the last six months or so, leading into Russia's special military operation. And of course, since then, the last hundred plus days, where we've seen just a massive escalation of this. But you may remember that even before this, there were key... changes and reforms happening with these big tech monopolies, one of which was with Twitter partnering with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, a defense department, Australian defense department, a U.S. defense department, a military contractor-funded think tank, big tech-funded think tank, which is literally an arm, basically, of the U.S. government partnering with Twitter to do exactly what just happened to me, which is censor anyone who challenges the pro-war, pro-establishment position on China. And of course, the Tiananmen Square incident, the so-called quote-unquote massacre that never happened, is one of the most sensitive issues. And so I was basically put on the chopping block because this is the policy. This is the uh, attack. This is the assault that is happening. So now, I am waiting for the next six days to see if Twitter will let me back in. That's why I am uh, using Telegram now to publish my posts, um, to publish all of my content now, um, as well as, of course, Patreon and Substack, which you can find in the description of this video and other places, you know, I'm on Instagram. Uh, but. Uh, None of those have the same kind of following as I had on Twitter because I was able to build relationships. I was able to uh, do a lot of work, share a lot of work there, and build connections with the rest of the independent media to build more of a following and a platform. And Twitter, I suspect, will eventually just uh, permanently suspend me. And then I'll have to make a new account and all of this nonsense, uh, which I'm already considered considering doing to have a backup account, just because of this nonsense. So nonetheless, I wanted to just bring up and raise what I exactly said. Some of you may be familiar with the thread already. Some of you may have been watching me on the Tiananmen Square stream that I did on June fourth. But I, I do want to show you so here's my Instagram. All right. So I do want to show you what happened first and foremost. So here is uh, what I said, okay, on Instagram. This is the message that I got. Your account has been logged for violating Twitter rules against abuse and harassment. So that's basically what I did. By countering the mainstream Western imperialist narrative about Tiananmen Square, the Western narrative against China, I have been... I have been labeled someone who has violated abuse and harassment rules, so I may not engage in the target of harassment of someone or uh, incite other people to do so. I'll show you what I said. I don't think that's what I did, but of course, this is all arbitrary. And so, oh, sorry about that. So... uh. I'm trying to get to the next photo. Okay, it's kind of so it says so. This was the tweet. Every June Fourth, Western propagandists remind us of the Tiananmen Square to smear China. The truth: No massacre occurred on the square, and the violence that took place uh, in Be- that took place in Beijing during that time was part of a failed color revolution backed by the United States. Hmm, that's interesting. That didn't sound like inciting violence. That did not sound like I was. I don't know, harassing anybody there. But yet, that's what I was told. And then, of course, here's the message. This is what they say to you. Delete the tweet, right? So they said, because I violated it, I wished harm, Uh, hoping that someone experiences physical harm um, against, I don't know who, but that's what I did. Um, Then I need to delete the tweet, okay? And then this is what shows up when you go to my account. So I am not able to access the account okay so there's a lot of people saying that oh i'm back right no 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 no. i was never taken off i was never raised i just can't get into it and i did delete the tweet and now i can get into the i i I can log into the account but i can't do anything but speak to followers by dm text only so i'm in read only mode so I, i don't have any capacity to use twitter in actuality so I wanted to show you all that just to inform you of the situation, just to show you where things are at and just how egregious this censorship is, just how uh, utterly bankrupt it is. And this is kind of what we're facing right now whenever we happen to uh, talk about something that the imperialists don't like. And let me just tell you that I have heard from more than one person now, more than one person. Uh, And I won't say their names because this is not about who they are, but they're all friends, they're all comrades, they're all anti-imperialists who have told me when I mention this, when I talk about this with them, they'll say, oh yeah, I think twice about what I say, or I really am careful about how I word things, about what content I decide to put in my tweets, I put it, you know, posts, whatever it is, because of the fear that the accounts will just be erased and will be gotten rid of. So that is the ultimate effect of censorship. It isn't just that um, this has an individual impact. No, this has a widespread chilling effect. It's to reduce the impact, the influence, and ultimately the activity of those who are engaged in real anti-imperialist work, real socialist work, real work for the people in the realm of information, which happens to be one of the most important sites of struggle at this moment because of how deep the propaganda is and because of how influential propaganda is to imperialist propaganda is in preventing the movements uh, from uh, from strengthening, right? It prevents movements from strengthening. It causes divisions. It creates confusion. And that's exactly what the political establishment of the capitalist, imperialist political establishment, and uh, their economic masters, the uh, big capital, that's exactly what they want. And so I'm just going to show you the thread, right, really quick. I'm not going to go over all of it. But this is a thread. I already read the first post that the uh violence that took place in beijing at that time was part of a failed color revolution that's what i call oops sorry about that. It's a different post uh that's what i call tiananmen square and that's what was cited as violence and harassment that's what i called the event and then i talked about the funding one million dollars for the fund for open reform and opening of china and key protest leaders were developed were uh, uh cultivated by this organization And then after the Tiananmen Square incident, not two months afterward, uh, these representatives at this fund were arrested and it was closed down. Why? Well, uh, even though the Chinese government doesn't say this exactly, it's pretty obvious that it was because of their, because of the influence that this NGO had in the unrest. And of course, there were other uh, NGOs operating, including the National Endowment for Democracy, which had opened In office there just a year before, so Western media has portrayed uh, the event uh, Tiananmen Square massacre, Tiananmen Square quote unquote massacre as a Chinese government massacre, and that journalists on the ground had rejected this, including Reuters, a Reuters journalist Graham Earnshaw, who said he saw no violence and that half of the deaths that occurred were uh, Chinese soldiers and police. So it seems pretty strange for a massacre, right? So I'm just citing the quotes that I found, right? So I did, uh, sorry about that again. This is a clunky desktop Instagram. And then, um, okay, so I went back to the beginning. So then the WikiLeaks cable also, right, that said that a Chilean diplomat had corroborated that there was no violence on the square that day, only Telegraph, the British UK tabloid outlet reported on it, so no bloodshed there. Then I said that the Tank Man situation, I showed the full video on a prior stream, the Tank Man development that has been so propagandized was not a violent scene. Nothing happened that was violent. The People's Liberation Army didn't kill him, didn't arrest him, didn't maim him, didn't brutalize him. It was uh, just an exchange that was caught on video and was photographed. And it was kind of a weird thing to happen, but ultimately it was very benign and has nothing to do with repression or anything like that. So there's the full video. Uh, You can watch it again if you want. I'll keep it on. So there you go. Tank man. Tank man has groceries in his hands. He's stopping the tank. Now he's going to talk to the PLA. He's saying, hey, what's going on? I don't know what he's saying exactly, but he gets off of the tank this groceries and he gets right back in front of it. Right. And they can't seem to get around him. And he's just standing there. And then a person from the neighborhood says, what the hell's going on? Probably. And then the others whisk him away. And then here you see uh, another uh, uh, here. You see the United States, the NYPD, uh, what they do in protests and actual protests, right, how they treat actual protesters. In uh, the summer of 2020, the Black Lives Matter uprisings. Look at that. The NYPD is running over people. It's literally running over people. So I think there's a stark contrast there. uh, And that's what got me censored on Twitter. Then I talk about the concealing of the images of soldiers without arms, because that was the vast majority, if not all before the actual violence that occurred outside of Tiananmen Square uh, happened. Uh, There were no weapons or arms being carried by the military. They generally do not carry arms. In the country, you rarely see armed anybody, police or otherwise, walking the streets of China. I spent two weeks there. I saw more than a few, especially in Urumqi, in Xinjiang. I saw more than a few police officers, more than a few PLA, uh, you could call them national military forces, because that's where the army is mainly directed. It's a sort of a security force for the country. They're rarely, they're usually marching in formation, just you know, marching together in small groups, and they are not armed generally. So that's just the facts of the situation. And then I said, you know, major achievements since Tiananmen Square that China has made are really worth noting, because it contrasts so much with the direction of the United States and the West, which their pursuit of color revolutions, as we talked about endless war, uh, as we talked about with Camilla is a big reason why there's so much instability in the world and it's facilitating a whole lot of social change both good and bad but nonetheless uh, we need to talk about that contrast because it says a lot about the myth the myth of Tiananmen Square so that's what got me censored everyone that's that's the deal that thread was on Twitter Uh, it was doing kind of well I thought it could have been doing better but it was obvious that I was being mass-reported I kind of thought I was going to be or at least flagged for some reason because I saw some of the quote tweets and it had obviously triggered a lot of these anti China bots, Ukraine flag bots, all of these forces that are kind of obsessed with following people like us, even though they despise us. Right. I get hate mail. I get things like that. in my especially Instagram is so toxic. I don't understand. I guess maybe I would get more of it on Twitter. Maybe I have a setting where they can't dm me i don't know twitter these i i it, it takes a lot for me to get to know how to use these things so there are some settings i'm just not even aware of still and i've been using it for quite some time but what is important is that you know i receive i know who obsessively follows me when i because i talk about china because they take certain positions on russia There is this, dare I say, fascistic ideological uh, development happening in the United States and the West, where anti-Russia, anti-China, xenophobia, russophobia, it is growing to such a fever pitch that there are forces, I won't call them, I'm not going to call them proletarian, I'm not going to call them working class forces, but they're, they're, they're kind of like a strata of people who see the decline of empire happening, maybe they were comfortable with empire. Uh, perhaps we could call them petty bourgeois, uh, petite bourgeois, which is the correct way of putting it. Uh, there are forces in all sides of the political spectrum like that who are really ready to be foot soldiers in this war. You saw during Russia, during this uh, special military operation by Russia, you saw people like Malcolm Nance supposedly pick up a gun and go to Ukraine. Really, he's just sitting in a hotel tweeting. But you had people picking up arms, going to Ukraine, saying, this is my fight against Russia. A lot of them were former military, but not all of them. And and I think uh, that should tell us, right, you had had Americans fighting. You had uh, U.S.-backed forces fighting in Syria. You know, you have this, I think, section of people. And also a lot of bots and the ways that, of course, I'm sure there's a government forces backing them, but also uh, just you know reactionaries doing this, where they're uh, uh, they're really taking advantage of the political environment that the United States government, that the United States is putting into place as it pursues this deadly, dangerous geopolitical strategy, because this is all about imperialist dominance, trying to silence voices who do not believe that the United States should be so aggressive toward China and Russia, that China and Russia are not the epitomes of evil, that these countries have a lot to offer the world, that their economic and political systems have been undergoing significant change, different different changes but nonetheless their alliance has also i think been born from what is common between them and that is the desire the aim of sovereignty sovereignty economic political and military sovereignty as well as the desire to maximize uh, their uh, uh, this sovereignty in the interests not just of themselves but also their own, their partners. And both of them, at one point or another, consider the United States to be one of those partners. Of course, that has been massively shifted and changed and transformed by the United States' behavior. So, with all that said, um, looks like I'm actually on my last legs with battery. Um, so, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to end the stream just yet. I'm going to take a little bit of a break. So please do stick around. Please do continue to like the stream. I don't want this to die on all of you. So stick around. I'll be right back. I'm just going to mute myself. Uh, Sorry, I'm going to mute myself, stop my camera, stick around, like the stream, all that good stuff. And I'm going to find my charger. Hold on one second. Okay, I'm back. I am charging now, I believe, although my computer's all funky lately, so I actually don't know. Let me look. I have to, like, drag things over. Am I charging? Get out of my way. All right, here we go. I am good to go. I am charging. All right, everyone, continue to like the stream, hit that notifications bell, share, all that good stuff, make sure... Make sure, I shouldn't be muted anymore. Uh, am I sh- muted anymore? Oh, okay. Like the stream, hit that notifications bell, share it around. Please do subscribe to my Patreon. Help me achieve the goal. I'm actually, thank you so much for all those who have come to my aid and supported my journalism. Uh, do subscribe. That's the best way to sustain. And as I said before, I'm on Telegram now. That's where I'll be publishing my work. Next up for me though, guys, is I want to definitely announce, I'm going to put the Telegram back in there, but I have an event coming up. I'm, I've, I've said it in past streams, but I'm going to pull it up again because I do want you all to, to uh, come to it. It's next week. I'm going to be writing an article based on the remarks that I'm going to be giving because that's how I organize my time. Uh, it's going to be on So I'm going to just plug what I'm going to talk about. It's going to be on class war uh, and multipolarity, how the struggle for multipolarity is, in fact, part of an overall global class war. And here it is. Friends of Socialist China, uh, socialistchina.org. We're holding this event, 11 a.m. Eastern, this Saturday, June 11th. So I co-edit this platform. You want to definitely be up to speed with it. Definitely make sure you sign up for the newsletter. Make sure that you register for this event on Eventbrite. There it is. Um, and be there 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. British time, 11 p.m. China time. We're going to be talk about NATO, AUKUS, the China-Russia relationship, the Biden's administration, Biden's administration undermining the one China principle in Taiwan, Solomon Islands, all of this stuff, NATO's plan for Ukraine, how it impacts China prospects of sovereign development, all the things that I talk about, but with people who are just as smart, if not smarter than me. So you definitely want to be there. You'll have Ben Norton, Victor Gao, right? This is a great guest list. Li Jingjing, Jenny Clegg. I'll be there to speak. Chris Motalko of the South African Communist Party. You'll have, he's actually director of the Pakistan China Institute, Mustafa Haider Said. You'll have a uh, senior fellow at Taihe Institute China, Professor Ding Yifan, who was recommended by the International Department of the Communist Party of China. So that should be a very interesting talk. Uh, Juhyeon Park of Noduntal, which is a commun- Korean community development organization. Very strong anti-imperialist organization. Rob Kajiwara, Peace for Okinawa Coalition. Uh, incredible activist. <coughs> I definitely need him on this stream. Definitely do need that very soon. So every time I look at this, I'm like, oh, that's an idea. Uh, Sarah Flounders, a great activist with the United National Anti-War Coalition and the IAC International Action Center. Yuri Tavrovsky, chairman of the Russia-Chinese Committee for Friendship, Peace, and Development. Very interesting fellow, incredibly smart. And you all know Radhika Desai. She's been on the program, uh, convener of the International Manifesto Group. She will be there as well. So definitely, definitely, definitely register for this. Uh, I will put it in the chat again. I will make sure that it is in the description of the video as well directly after I end this stream. So please do come to that event, register for it, share it around, make sure you tell all your friends, make sure you're sharing it on your social media, make sure you're informing those who also have platforms to be covering this event. So that's all I wanted to say about that. And, you know, now, you know, let's make this a full two hours. Let's I can go 13 more minutes. <clears throat> Thank you all for sticking around with me. Uh, any questions, any concerns, any super chats? I don't see any super chats, so we don't have to do the questions like that. But if you have any, put them at the bottom of this chat. And, you know, we can have a, <clears throat> a brief discussion. Uh, While you're doing that, I also want to plug something else that I do. I will admit that I'm having incredible difficulties tech-wise. And it's a new app, so this is not a slight on the app. This is not a slight on anybody. It's just my experience. I'm having incredible technical difficulties. It's both me because I have an Android phone that is OnePlus. And OnePlus are just having so many issues with this new app. And I'm sure it's on their end too. But I'm on Colin as a... Um, as a podcaster, so I do a weekly podcast called Cold War Brew. It is now in the description. Please do subscribe to that. So please do just uh, be there. <clears throat> uh, this is a good one. I like this. I like this question. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer in a second. But I just put the link to the call in app show that I do. Follow it. Subscribe to that. Make sure you're you know plugging. It's also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can find it afterward. But you can we can have live discussions. So if you enjoy when I answer your questions, I do that almost primarily. I do like 20 minutes of just my own content, but then the rest of it, 40 minutes or more, is dedicated to just questions, this conversation live with you all, where you can call in and talk directly with me. I really like it. I I, I, I haven't had anyone disrespectful yet. I haven't had anything like that happen. Uh, it's been a great experience. And so you definitely want to follow that. With that said, though, this is a great question. Thanks for the super chat. I'm going to butcher your name. Lucretia? Uh, yeah, it's. I hope that I'm saying it correctly. But you said, have any tips for dealing with liberal family members? Uh, yes. So um, my father was a diehard liberal, New Deal liberal, uh, supportive of Bernie Sanders. but. Um, you know, this is a tough month for me because the an anniversary of his death is coming up this month. I struggled a lot with him, especially as I, you know, around the 2012, 13, 14 onward until he, he died in 2017. I struggled a lot with him in conversations, definitely. I I came to this. There were point. So we all go through our kind of political. We all have a political evolution we all approach politics in certain ways with people who disagree with us, especially liberals when we're on the left, especially liberals who are close to us. Sometimes we, you know, we go scorched earth, right? We're like, fuck it. We don't give a shit about what they think. We're just going to go hard on our position. And if they don't like it tough, or some of us are like, well, I'm not really going to talk about this stuff because they're not going to change anyway. And, I don't want to get into that kind of conflict with family because it's too stressful. It's not what I need. So many other reasons. I've definitely been on all of the, and there are many things in between all of that. I've definitely been everywhere with that when it comes, when it came to my father and, you know, family in general, I don't have a huge family, but, um, I would say that for me, it's, I think I always sit in the middle of like, well, I I don't need this stress. So I can't if I can't convince them, then I just won't talk about it versus when we do talk about politics, I'm just kind of scorched earth and I just go Um, and I just say what I feel, say what I mean. And and sometimes if there's emotion behind it, you know, it can be, you know, it can be a source of conflict. But I think. Because liberalism is such is the dominant ideology of capital and capitalism and it is the most effective ideology of capital and capitalism, I think what's difficult is that we often think that liberals are just going to turn leftists. And while there's some truth to that because there is, of course, right, a class basis to everything, so uh, people who have certain experiences, people who have certain struggles, people who sit at a certain place in this class order, yeah, they're probably, even if they are liberals, they're probably more likely to be influenced by um, the situation that they're in, their conditions. And yeah, they might they, they might move in a the positive direction politically, hopefully toward a socialist direction. But it's not a guarantee And that's because of the hegemony of liberalism. So I think for us who are already at a place where we believe in class consciousness and working class politics and socialism and Marxism and revolution and anti imperialism, all of this, we're already there uh, and evolving and joining organizations and participating in media, all of this, we're already there. I think what we can do is just stay true to ourselves, right? Stay true to ourselves. We we can't necessarily be our family's organizers, right? We we would like that, but I, I remember something I remember so that was so inspirational and influential on my politics, especially because there's not much of this spoken about and written about. But I remember reading A Dying Colonialism by Franz Fanon, and it's a an credible book because it's set during his observations. Of the anti colonial movement, the national liberation movement in Algeria. And he talks about a lot of the kind of social and cultural intricacies of what it means to throw off the yoke of colonialism and how it impacts culture, how it impacts society, how it impacts social life. And he did raise this question of families kind of being torn apart at times because disagreements with not just the politics of the revolution not just the politics of the anti-colonial struggle but also with the method right even if they all even if the family agreed yeah we need liberation yeah we need to be independent from the french we need to have sovereignty and independence even with that there was a disagreement on the method how would this be done would it be done in a uh, a manner that's peaceful would it be done Through violence, would it be done through a combination? Would it be done? How would it be done? And those disagreements also tore apart families. So I think that for us, the best we can do is stay true to ourselves, right? While also understanding that our families are not class monolithic. That politics are complex. We're we're if if they're liberals, we're going to have disagreements and. Uh, The best way we can navigate them is to just ensure, you know, just for our psyches as well, just to ensure that we're being true and that our actions, right, uh, the way we speak, what we do, that tends to be influential. That tends to move people, right? Even my father, before he died, I could tell that he was... Uh, you know, that he was even though he wasn't like a militant radical, he grew up in the 60s. He hated Richard Nixon. He wrote about Emma Goldman. He he had a lot of like contradictory uh, understandings of things. You know, he voted for Bernie Sanders, but all this, all the same, he would, you know, do whatever he could to get Democrats elected. Right. It wasn't like he was a revolutionary, but even just being who I was, I could see that he was more engaged in just talking about certain things and, you know, uh, amenable to some of my positions on even race, which was a difficult thing for him because he was white and he grew up in a rural background. He, his father, you know, uh, German, Irish immigrants. uh, Let's just say that the combination of that and being in the military did not make him the most racially sensitive person all the time. Even if he understood the history and complexities of racism to a degree, maybe more than most white people did, he still would say things that I'm not going to even repeat on here, right? And that taught me a lot about race and racism. Because you could see that line always straddled, right? He would defend black people's rights for 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 human rights uh, uh, yeah he would and then he uh, at the same time because he grew up in a military culture he also grew up in a rural area with uh, among immigrants who had their own ethnic and race divides i mean he said things that i didn't even know what the hell he was saying for most of my life until i started to really look into this stuff so i think we can just be true to ourselves and we can stand up for what we think is right We can talk about it with our families if they're liberals and they are just so insufferable. You know, you'll know. I think you'll know. I think you probably already do know from your own experience. You know when it ain't working and it's not going to work, right? But I think your own actions and what you do speaks for itself. I've seen it especially with friends, right? Both my wife and I have friends that have been moved politically significantly just by them following what we do talking to us about these issues, they're all liberals or they all started at some form of liberalism, even if they were to the left of liberal, but most of them were not. And so it makes a big difference. It makes a big difference what we do and what we say. And now we have a lot of friends joining communist parties. I mean, that's that's just something that I wouldn't have imagined. And, that, and I can say that most of these folks I've known within the last 10 years. So our, what we do really does matter because what we do corresponds i think with the material reality of the situation so we have a certain orientation we're not we're we're not just you know throwing you know, you know this is not like i mean we're not i'm hoping you're not an anarchist <laughs> not because it's bad to be an anarchist 100% but you know i'm hope i i, I do think that there is a method to the madness for us and uh, we have certain goals and aims, and we're pursuing them the best we can under very difficult conditions, and that makes a difference. People people are influenced by that. And so I think I think just keep doing whatever you're doing and continue to pursue what you want to pursue in this struggle, and it will pay off, uh, even if it doesn't seem like family is just going to be 100% with you all the time. Um, but anyway, very good question. That that, that question got me because I love it. Uh, because I love that kind of question, because it just speaks to the heart of just our lives. You know, this is the real life. Um, yeah, Lucrecia, you said it. We live in communities with each other. Don't we ever? And, is, and, and don't we live in a moment where we are just so much more alienated from each other because of COVID, economic crises, just overwork, the material conditions of the society a lot are very difficult, very challenging. And so uh, it's almost like these social our social lives are very precious, and uh, they are also kind of the incubators for the direction we want to go in. Right? We don't want to be living in communities where it's just like us having politics and the politics mean nothing except just for ourselves, right? We, we do this in order to bring our communities, our, People's, our, uh, uh you know, uh, our class, right? We do it for that. We don't do it just because there are some. I mean, look, I've been on the left for a long time. I have been part of a lot of different organizations. I have met a lot of various tendencies, people who sit on all the different socialist and Marxist tendencies. I've met, you know, uh, I, I won't say I've met them all, but I have met a lot. And I can say that there are some people who are definitely in this political thing on the left who are really just they just care about themselves. And we know we we've seen it. We've met them. We know them. We don't like it. We oftentimes don't like them, but it's a reality. It exists. It's a very American tendency, and it's something that we always have to be combating. But generally, and it seems like where this question came from is, we are actually concerned about our politics having influence in bringing our communities, our class, to a point of emancipation, liberation, and, you know, all of that comes with that. So, um, I don't see any other questions. Uh, Lucretia had a really good one. I actually post that one. That's a great question. Yeah, I don't see any others. If there's anyone else who wants to drop in a question real quick before I... Peace out. Please do. Um, uh, thank you, Indigo Kami. Uh, Kami, I said Indigo Kami. Thank you, Indigo Carmine. Uh, great discussion. Contemporary political diversity, fluidity in different public and private spaces. Yes, indeed. We have to really navigate what that's all about. Uh, family from the 20th, 20th century, 6078, are victims of capitalist education. Oh, aren't they ever? Uh, and uh, yeah, no, aren't. Isn't it true, especially as we get closer to the 80s? Um, thank you, Patrick Massey. I wanted you to go on Bad Faith for so long. And that impromptu debate was so great. You came up looking really, really good. Wow. Appreciate that, Patrick. I'd love to be on Bad Faith. Haven't gotten the invitation for that podcast, but I appreciate uh, being on, nonetheless, the debrief. Um, so... Uh, tips for ignoring lib families, ignore them, fully reject being a family person to become one of, a, of the revolution. And we comrades are your family now. I mean, that's definitely a direction. Uh, I think that's the direction a lot of us are going to start going in as things intensify too. Um, so, yeah, um, I don't see any other questions. So it's been a full 2 hours here. The first hour was an incredible conversation with Camila Escalante. I always enjoy having her on because I just feel the solidarity, the anti-imperialism, the socialism, the and also just from a perspective that is rooted in the struggle. We don't have a lot of we have a lot of people talking. We do have a lot of people talking. But not a lot of voices who are doing the walking. And this isn't to be Like, oh, well, it's not, you're not doing anything if you're doing media. That's not true. I primarily do media now. But I think there's a certain orientation to our politics that we can kind of, at least I can tell when it's rooted, not just in like making the hot take, trying to be right, but also trying to reach people, talk to people, understand people, understand who is an antagonist to our politics, who is just contradictory, what are resolvable contradictions between the people and among us, the, the old Mao reading that you all should read on contradiction, right? It's a great, um, it's a great work. But right, the difference between contradictions among the people versus contradictions uh, between the people versus uh, uh, contradictions and antagonisms with the, the power Elite, the ruling class, like all of this, is very important to understand. And we can tell who, you know, I can tell at least people who are just kind of trying to be right, trying to maybe hit that algorithm, versus people who are trying to influence things and uh, or influence the movement, right? Trying to really move people in a positive direction. People who say they're communist and then just kind of do clickbaity stuff versus people who say they're socialists and communists, and then actually try to adhere to the principles, the theory, and the work that's involved in that, and the responsibilities that we have to people, the responsibilities we have to the movement, the responsibilities that we have to the politics, which are an extension and an expression of the people and of the movement. So, you know, I think whenever Camille is on, I can... You know, I always have that like, you know, like, oh, yeah, no, she's she's definitely she's uh, she's definitely in this. You know, she's a real she's as Big Teal said is a real one. Thanks for calling me a real one. But she's definitely a real one. Um, thanks, Lucretia. Thank you to Loa Socialisti for coming back. Um, appreciate it. Yeah, definitely check her out. So with that said, everyone. Yeah. Um, telegram call it (laughs) like how you slip that in there i will try to figure that out i've been figuring things out on telegram i will continue to figure that out is it the live stream feature i've been it said live stream i didn't know what that meant but i can definitely do that with you all i would like to to get a little bigger first um i have about 565 subscribers so uh please do uh, continue to subscribe to that telegram if you have not yet. Um, Cause I'd like it to grow and then, yeah, we can definitely do some, um, there it is again, the telegram you can definitely do some, some live stuff, some fun stuff, um, you know, in the interim, but yeah, look out for that event Saturday, register for it. If you have not, I, I pulled it up on the screen. I put it, uh, I'll put it in the description right after I'm done here. Let me not forget that, actually. Um, I'll sh- Let me just put it also in the chat, so you will, I, I, if you can access links in the chat. I'm always never that sure. Um, so here is the link to that again. Register for that event. I am going to put it in the description of this video too, um, so check that out. And with that said, everyone, enjoy the rest of your Monday. I got to get to writing. I hope to be back on at some point in the middle end of the week. But next couple days, today, tomorrow at least, I need to get to running. I need to prepare for this event. I need to make sure that I have some analysis that will be helpful. All right? All right. Salute, everyone. I'll be back. Thanks for supporting. Of course, like that stream as you're going away. Subscribe to that channel as you're going away. Make sure that you hit that notifications bell uh, as you're subscribing. Make sure that you're, if you can, supporting my work at patreon.com slash or Substack or anywhere else that you feel like you're able uh, to support me. And uh, it's all in the description and it's all very much appreciated. Peace out. Bye bye. Take care.